Let me uh, ask now if we can open in prayer. And uh, HB, you want to just open us in prayer, brother? Grab a microphone and thanks. Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for our time together today, our meetings and various ways you have been at work in us, through us, and among us. We thank you for the conversation we have tonight. and We pray for your wisdom that we would honor Christ and that we would serve brothers and sisters that are here well. I pray for renewal of strength. I pray, Father, that you guard our hearts and govern our tongues. And I pray that you would receive the glory from the time we spend together this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Friends, how many of you are at the Southern Baptist Convention for the first time? Would you just stand if you're here? And we're going to squint because we can't see with the house lights that much. Keep standing. Just stay, stay standing for a minute. Let's look around. I'm thinking that's half the folks here, maybe a little more than half. Wow. All right. Thanks. Please be seated. It, why is that? Is that because is it always that way? Is it because we're in Birmingham? What's it is not unusual for about half of the younger people in the room, okay, uh, to have been at the Southern Baptist Convention for the first time, which is I think is a sign of health, and it does vary a great deal where we go. Most of the seminaries also offer a class. I know Southern does, and we do, and so the class from Southeastern, I think. 90% of them, this is their first convention. So that's another reason why. Okay. Well, friends, at the end, depending on how our conversation with each other goes, we'll open it up to you guys for some questions. Uh, but first, we're going to spend most of our time talking between us here about what's going on here at the convention and how the convention is doing. And we hope to, along the way, give you first-timers a bit more understanding about what this meeting is and how you can use it. Now, HB, you've been to how many of these conventions? Roughly. Seven, eight. Seven or eight. Al? <laughs> this will be number 35 or 36. Danny? About the same. I started in uh, 83 and have only missed one since 83. Okay. And I've been at about 27, I think. Um, <laughs> approximately. Uh Sometimes I, I've heard people who are here for the first time come and they get a little frustrated that there's not more for them to do. They feel like they're sitting in the sessions and we sing and we pray and we hear a message and we, you know, learn what some entity is doing. Um, These are the same people who go to a major league baseball game. <laughs> Very true. No, that Seven is not true, and Al Moeller and Mark Dever have no right to speak about any level of sports under any <laughs> circumstances. That's fair. That's fair. But Danny, Danny, let me just pick you up on that. So uh, are you surprised? Do, do you ever hear that kind of reaction? All the time. So what are they expecting, and why should they not expect that? Well, they think it's going to be a T4G or a TGC or a Jacksonville Pastors Conference, 
And it's not set up to be a pastor's conference because, as Alice said many times, it's the world's largest church business session. And by the very nature of what Southern Baptist churches do in terms of our cooperative work as a convention, we have to conduct business, whether you like it or not. It's like a Wednesday night business conference at a church. There's certain matters you must deal with uh, in terms of entities, budgets, and other things. And so you just have to realize we do try to mix in with it singing preaching devotions uh, if you're not moved by the international mission board's presentation you probably need to get saved uh, i mean there's just something wrong with you and so those type of things i find to be deeply moving and uh very inspirational and so things are scattered out throughout the two days that we're together that should uh, lift your spirits and as i said this uh, afternoon I was reminded again, in spite of our shortcomings and the difficulties that we have, uh, why I am proud and thankful to be a Southern Baptist because of what we're able to do together to reach the nations and North America uh, with the gospel and also provide wonderful theological education for the ministers uh, who uh, go to our churches. H.P., when you uh, convince your guys to come with you or other friends you have who are pastors, and they get here and the first time they've been, they reflect with you on the convention. Anything they're particularly surprised by? Well, when I am inviting guys, I'm going to give them heads up. The pastor's conference is just going to overstuff you with preaching. And it's going to be a great time to get your heart and mind. And, and can, we just, can we just take a moment and remember again how well you did with that last year, brother? Uh, that was a fine pastor's conference. And then I just kind of brace them that you're going to hear a lot of reports. On the Tuesday and Wednesday. On the Tuesday, when the meeting starts, you're going to hear reports. But pay attention to these reports because you get a sense of what the partnership of the SBC really is. And throughout the day, I bumped into a couple of guys who were here for the first time. And they were greatly encouraged hmm. by the reports that they hear. And I thought the reports were well done. And encouraging. And I think if you kind of know that that's what you're going to get, that helps. Bill. Al. Yeah, I think most messengers don't know that the Southern Baptist Convention is an 1845 corporation chartered in Georgia. Okay. That's exciting, right? <laughs> but you have to know that it only exists for a few hours a year. I know no one else understands this because if you put a list of denominations, they're going to put the Southern Baptist Convention. But Thursday, the Southern Baptist Convention does not exist. Maybe the executive committee? The executive committee exists. That's the Tennessee Charter Corporation. But the, the executive committee can't decide what only the convention can decide. So between now and Orlando, between when the gavel falls here in Orlando, the Southern Baptist Convention ceases legally to exist, except as a charter corporation, which can't meet again until Orlando in 2020. So that's how important what takes place here. So you see here, you say, there's a report, there's a report, there's a report. Yeah, but that's the only opportunity for Southern Baptists to say yes or no to something for a year. Okay, then what about from the other side? Danny was saying... Uh, you know, people wanting more preaching and prayer. And, but what about the people who come expecting, like, well, shouldn't we have discussion about these things? I mean, I feel like it's already done, and it's kind of presented to me, and we're given six minutes to talk about it, and then we have a, where's the long conversation about it? What about folks like that? Well, the long conversation is called a board of trustees. 
elected by the convention from our churches. And the Board of Trustees has to approve, for instance, every financial statement that's in the book of reports. Those financial statements don't complain about having nothing to do unless you've read all those, read all those financial statements, which I know good and well you haven't. <laughs> F. Um, so there was something you had to do. You just didn't do it. There was plenty to do. All right, all right. You were handed that. This is a time to teach the president, all right? If you read every word in the book of reports, that little book you get when you registered as a messenger, no, would you no, please no, stand? No, 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 no. The big book yeah. that you got when you yeah. registered. The, uh, the bigger big one. Book. Please stand if you read every word in there. This is not a surprise to me, Dr. Dever. Right, Wait, who read it? Okay, we got to have your name. Say again. A okay. real Baptist. And do you, brother, <laughs> Matthew, do you always read everything in the book of reports? Matthew, my hat's off to you. But Al, you're saying there's only one Matthew in a room of a thousand people. Yeah, but... Okay, there's two. There you go. All right. And, and great. I would be three. Uh, but it comes down to this. It's accountability. It's participation. You elect a board of trustees. You really shouldn't have to do their work unless they make a mistake. You make a mistake, the convention can remedy it. And by the way, in the last couple of years, we've seen that happen. Uh, the executive committee does its work, presents a budget. How much work goes into presenting a budget of hundreds of millions of dollars? And that's presented. But, you know, the executive committee that put all that work into it, they can't approve it. Only the messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention can. It's like the work we do on our budget in our local church. Right. The congregation has to approve it. That's You've right. got a finance committee or deacons, your elders, somebody who's put a ton of work into it. But the congregation is going to have to vote it into being. That's right. And, and you did. You know, that was one of the earliest actions in the second part of the executive committee report. And so you didn't <clears throat> feel like the earth shook. But that is the most, like, un-Vatican thing imaginable. That is one of the most Baptist moments imaginable. Not one dollar could be spent of hundreds of millions of dollars of missionary work until you said yes. I think that's powerful. Amen. Matthew, are you convinced? I'll take that as a yes. Um, so there, there have been... Uh, Anything going on at this convention that we saw today that was surprising to you? And we're going to start with Danny, then HB, then Al. Danny? No, uh, no nothing was surprising to me, um, including the two very important uh, bylaw amendments that were voted on late in Why the day the today. Why the close vote for the recording secretary? Oh, well, that's, that's a different question. I understand, uh, but I'm just asking. But I wasn't, I guess they know the results that... Yeah, 51-49. Uh, 40 votes. Yeah. 40 votes. Um, I think the reason it was close is two things. One, you did have a very popular lady who's a dear friend, uh, at least to several of us up here, Kathy Litton. Her husband's a trustee at Southeastern uh, running. Uh, she was running against, though, obviously a very well-qualified brother, uh, who had served alongside the previous secretary for 12 years, right. uh, had been in that position the last several years. And so it would be easy for me to, I could have been happy either way. Right. Uh, I know Kathy better than I know the gentleman, uh, but I think that's why you had a close vote uh, on that particular issue. And why no other positions contested? 
Um, you know, that was very interesting. Uh, you would never know this unless you get to peer in behind the scenes. But I know there have been several years where the president of the convention has come to certain of us and said, um, like, we have nobody running for first vice president. And I'm like, like nobody and a nobody. And we need somebody. I mean, there are few positions that are probably uh, less influential and consequential than second vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so uh, the first is more important, obviously, because if something happened to the president, you are the president uh, as a result of being in that position. But those are just two positions that are not given a lot of time or energy or Danny. forethought. Just remember, Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the most eccentric characters this in the Southern true. Baptist Convention named Wiley Drake. Where's, where, where's Wiley? Is he huh? Is he no, Wiley? but he's not here. He's but he hasn't been here for a couple of years. Well, he's getting on up there in years. Our guys so. are wondering, where's Wiley? Well, it's complicated. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wiley's complicated. But, but I think it's, Al makes it, a great it, point. It's complicated. His, historically, who did Wiley Drake defeat for second vice president of the company oh, that year? Oh, you know, I think I might be sitting next to him, and it's not HB. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I don't think he true. got beat for first vice president. That's right. That's right. J.D. Greer went down to Wally Drake right. for second vice president. That's right. Well, that's right. that nominating speech given for Wally Drake. Well, that's is, what oh, I'm trying to bring up. So right. you're talking about nothing is more meaningless than being second vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention. You can find this Wiley, thing on YouTube tonight. Wiley Drake's nominator said, you ask me while I'm, why I'm nominating Wiley Drake to be second vice president of the Southern Baptist Convention. It is because, brothers, there is no third vice president. <laughs> <laughs> the whole speech was that good. You can find it on YouTube. I'm sitting by O.S. Hawkins, and I'm listening to this, and he says, Dear Lord, we're going to elect him. And I said, Oh, there's no way. He said, Mark my words, J.D. is going down. Yeah. <laughs> Wiley Drake would also be known as Mr. Disney Boycott, just oh, yeah. to indicate oh, yeah. that. We got a history too. here. Yeah. Yes. H.B., yes. anything surprised you today? Nothing surprised you today. Alan, anything surprised you today? Danny Aiken's wearing a purple shirt. Well, brother, look at your tie. That's yeah, but this surprises me. Okay, you said what surprised I me? I hadn't today? noticed it. My wife said that she liked it. I didn't yeah. say I didn't like it. Okay, thank you very much. I didn't right, say right, I right, didn't anything, like it. Anything, but I know there has to be some kind of intervention for this for, to happen. Any, yeah. Anything about the business of the convention today on the floor uh, that surprised you today? No, because you have to understand the volatility that's built into our polity, which means you have 8,100 messengers as of about 2 o'clock. And every that's one a of small them, space for 8,100 messengers to fit in. Yes. Only it, by the way, it was cooler there than it is sitting here right now. Yes, it yeah, was. But true. only 4,500 voted in the two contested elections. So half the messengers that were registered were not in the hall. We yeah, well, were these or, the hall. or didn't vote. Fewer than half voted for the registration secretary. But so if, if you're surprised, it's generally going to be because something happens on the floor that clearly wasn't orchestrated. But that's the whole point of the Southern Baptist Convention. Every messenger has at least theoretical equal access uh, to a microphone, which means that even if you are an agency head and an issue comes up, you got to go stand in line like everyone else. If it's about your entity, 
then you can get privileged because you have to answer on behalf of your entity. But anything else, and you're, every Southern Baptist gets in the same Well, we, we saw Morris Chapman, former CEO, right, right there. We saw Philip Bethencourt, current vice president of the RLC, standing right there at a microphone. Yeah. Um, today was historic. It was the third time, not since the turn of this century, but since the turn of the 20th century, uh, that we have revised our Constitution. And, and that's just no small thing. And it were, there, these were two very important acts. I was confident Southern Baptists would, would do both by the supermajority required. But I wasn't sure what would happen on the way there. And we have to do it again next year, correct? Yes, it, it, it takes a, a second supermajority vote. Is there going to be anything coming up tomorrow that we should be surprised, that you think we're going to be surprised about, Danny? Not surprised, but I think we need to be in the room late tomorrow afternoon when we have, I think, 13 resolutions that are coming forward. So that's when all the resolutions that we've both read in the bulletin and heard brought forward. I don't Some think of they've them they've been printed in the bulletin yet. You'll get them tomorrow morning. We will get them tomorrow morning. Yeah. And so uh, most of the resolutions we would have heard moved today will be ruled out of order. Those were motions. There were no resolutions. No. no we changed the process. Uh, I've been chairman of the resolutions committee. Not twice. You've done it, right? Twice. Yeah. Um, they, we changed the process, which was very helpful. It used to be that resolutions could be brought up until like four o'clock on the first day of business, yeah. but now it's closed two weeks. At least before. Oh, so we only have yeah. motions on the floor. Only motions. Okay. Yeah. And for, for first-timers, explain the difference between a motion and a resolution. A motion, by definition, is an action called for the convention is authorized to take. The convention can take an action. A motion does not express a sentiment or a conviction. A resolution is not an action. No action is called for, but it expresses a conviction um, or, or a statement. That, that's the distinction. The sentiment, uh, the conclusions of the, of the convention at that moment. And that's all the binding authority resolutions have. It, 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 morally speaking, has a bit more binding authority in that it's important. So we mentioned Wiley Drake. We mentioned yep. Walt Disney. They came to blows back in the 90s. Indeed. And it was through a resolution. No, it began as a resolution. But a resolution can't call for a boycott. A boycott required a motion. But they have no authority to, to require that. You're a, right. A boycott. The convention simply called for a boycott. I voted against that. The SBC leadership in sovereignty decided that it wasn't a good idea and shouldn't happen. How'd you vote? I voted against it, but then I had to go on national television for months and support it. Um, <laughs> Faithful to the end. But uh, yeah, the point is that, uh, and, and, and look, when you actually go back to the Danny, Orlando. Danny, how did you vote? I did the same. I voted against it, but I was at Southern Seminary with Dr. Moeller, and because the convention took that position, I had to try to graciously, kindly navigate it as a, an affirming way, though I did not agree with it. Yeah, and, and what happened was, is, again, it's the democracy in action. And by the way, there was a resolution and a motion, so it's a little complicated the way it all came about. So the convention eventually expressed its sentiment and recommended an action. But, uh, and the action did have effect. I mean, SBC entities, I don't think they held any meetings at Disney anyway, but certainly couldn't after that. 
But the point is that a messenger could get to the floor, and uh, we were reminded just the other night that it was it was basically a, a, a woman who got to the microphone. A grandmother. Yeah, a grandmother, and just expressed moral outrage, and there it was. Because Disney uh, owned, uh, what, Miramax? Right. Several uh, cable televisions that use, put a lot of R-rated pornography on, and she just gave a very passionate speech about it, and she carried the day. It's the same a few years later. Uh, we didn't have a resolution that year on abortion, and a sweet lady went to the mic and said, I, I want to bring the resolution to the floor that I sent into the committee that you guys rejected. And the uh, chairman of the resolution committee said, well, we've spoken to that before. We don't need to speak to it again. And that lady started weeping and said, you're talking about the life of the unborn. We should speak about that every year. And the arena erupted, and I'm sitting there thinking, you need to say, thank you. The resolution committee receives this as a friendly, I don't know if you call it amendment or a friendly resolution, and we're going to bring, and he, he, he stood his ground, and I forget who it was, but it was brutal. Yes, this is where good pastoral leadership flames. exists in saying, exactly. that's what I meant. Yes. <laughs> okay, HB, you're sitting here between these two old hands at the convention. You're, you're newer here. Uh, talk for a minute with these people who are, are here, who are, have been here one time or two times or three times, fairly new, about how you're finding it and if you're, what you're finding as a pastor useful and encouraging about coming to this convention. Sure. So I'm listening. What year is this Disney thing? 95, yeah, six? Yeah, right in the middle of the 90s. Yeah. I'll yeah. have to look it so up, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, all of that's before my time. I was thinking I might have went to Disneyland a couple of times that year living in Los Angeles. That's all I knew about that. So I'm, I'm relatively new <laughs> to... Southern Baptists yes. were struck with an inability to recognize one another uh. on the grounds of Disney during the boycott. <laughs> no, I'm... I can't wait to get home. I'm encouraged. And I feel like this happens to me each of the years that I have been here, I feel a new zeal about the Great Commission. I feel like I stammered out of the commissioning of the new missionaries to listen to the encouragements this morning with Who's Your One, um, which We've just started mentioning to some of our members, and they just feel like it's a simple way to be having gospel engagement. And it just kind of reminds you that the main thing needs to be the main thing. And there may be a lot of um, hype around a whole lot of issues on our way here. But when you get here and your heart is open to what actually has taken place, I think there's just great encouragement about what God is doing in the schools, in the entities, and even through, and I guess um, having an opportunity to build relationships with uh, men who are leaders, to, to God has blessed us with 
good men who love the Lord, who love the gospel, who love the church, and who love this convention. And sometimes you kind of watch us ambling about and then land and get it right. And it just is a reminder of God's goodness and sovereignty and faithfulness in the work of, of his people. And so I, I really think for a new pastor coming, um, I, like I said, I, I had a friend who I did not know was going to be here. And like literally he caught me coming down a hallway and is like, where do I go? What do I do? He just sees people everywhere. You sent him to the Nine March booth. That is, yes. <laughs> and um, just over the afternoon, he's texting me with thanks. Um, and I would have had no idea how he would have processed it all. But there is, there is great work going on in the life of churches, entities. And I think it's an encouragement. Danny, you want to talk next about race, complementarianism, or abuse? Do I want to talk about Which one anything? should we go for next? How much fun do you want to have? Brother, we're covering all three tonight, and we're well, doing it in the next half okay. hour. I, I'll say this. Okay, I'll, I'll jump out in the deep. I think most of the folks in this room are virtually of one mind uh, on sexual abuse. Uh, I think most everybody in this room is probably very much of one mind on the evils of racism. So let's talk about complementarianism. All right, complementarianism it is. Um, I've heard it said recently in posts that complementarianism is only about 40 years old. Uh, what, do they, what do people mean when they say that, Danny? Well, the only thing I can think they mean by that is the word became popular about 40 years ago because the idea of equal in essence but different in function assignment goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and there's nothing new about that. Yeah, Al? No, it just strikes me as a, I, I know the church historian, you just said it to aggravate me, but <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, just imagine someone in 365 AD going, Nicene Christology, it, it's only existed about 40 years. Um, <laughs> yeah, but the point is, you're right, people are saying that. But heresy precedes orthodoxy. You do not codify orthodoxy until you have to in correcting the wrong. Walter Bauer. And true. And in, in, that doesn't mean that the truth was not there. That was Bauer's problem. Yeah. He thought it was an artificially created orthodoxy. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, so in other words, Nicene Christology is in the New Testament. Yeah. But it was codified when they had to answer Arius. Complementarianism is Genesis 1 forward. But it had to be codified, had to be expressed. And I know this in my own life because when I was a seminary student, it hadn't been yet. I'm old enough to be older than complementarianism as a defined uh, reality and argument. There's no recovering biblical manhood and womanhood when I was a seminary student. The there Dan was no Danvers, Danvers statement. statement. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I won't go into detail. Excuse but there me, there raise no your hand if you don't know what the Danvers statement is. Just Christian conference here. It's a lot of humility. Raise your hand if you don't, do not know what the Danvers statement is. You've never heard of it. Keep putting your hands up. Just we need more people being honest. All right, great. Thank you. Uh, shame on you for those of you who didn't know and kept your hand down. Uh, if you go online and just take it, type in Danvers statement. That was what eighty six, eighty seven. I think it was released eighty seven. 
it's a group of largely northern evangelical professors who pulled together some thoughts on gender because in the 1970s there was a big push for uh, uh, evangelical feminism uh, in the sense of egalitarianism. So I was at Gordon-Conwell as an MDiv student in the 80s. Uh, I, every professor I had was an egalitarian. I think one of the things that turned me into a complementarian was having every professor I had be an egalitarian and make arguments that I thought were really poor compared to other arguments they made. Yeah. Because it's even better than I. There's a clear parallelism historically going on here between complementarianism and inerrancy. Uh, inerrancy, if you say, well, inerrancy is a Johnny come lightly. No, inerrancy is as old as the Bible. Uh, you know, even Bultmann said that Jesus held to the view of the Bible that any Orthodox Jew of his day did, that it was in completely true and trustworthy. He just thinks Jesus was wrong, whereas we believe that Jesus was right. So the word may become more prominent uh, since 1978, but the concept goes all the way back to the scriptures themselves. Can somebody else give him a microphone? You have this same kind of thing going on with complementarianism and inerrancy at the same time. Um, wait, yeah, Al, you were going to say something on that. No. no I just totally agree. He, he's absolutely right. The Chicago Statement was 1978. Yeah. So this is roughly a decade later. And, uh, and, and by the way, you fast forward to the Nashville Statement on sexuality and gender. If, if you had gone up to... Carl Henry and use the word transgender, he would not know what you were talking about. Mm. And, and so the, you, you respond to a new vocabulary. I don't think the word, in fact, I've been looking at this lately, I don't think the word complementarian was a, a thing until complementarianism. But it is easy to document how the word complement was used over and over again. Uh, whether it's a commentary on Genesis or a theology. But Danny, I think you were on the way to making the point that we're all going to agree on racism, largely. We're all going to agree on abuse, largely. But, and I didn't let well, you finish your point. I think we're all largely on agreement in terms of complementarianism, but the application of it, I do think there's probably going to be some degree of difference uh, and some diversity of opinion. And I'll go ahead and jump back. I guess there's something wrong with me tonight. Um, well, Danny, we were getting to that next. <laughs> well, here we go. Um, I but, see. But you know, it can, it can be like Reagan and Bush. I paid for that microphone. Yeah, you, know, so. you, you can, can do that. You can jerk it right back, man. Uh, I see um, some of the discussion within the complementarian world. Like I see some people discussing variations of eschatology or even variations of Calvinism. The difference is those are primarily uh, theological, ex almost exclusively theological. When it comes to how you live out complementarianism, that moves us very much into the realm of practical theology. And so are you going to always require... Uh, and, and Al and I, I think, are basically in agreement here. I imagine all of us are that uh, the office of the uh, elder is restricted to the male and that uh, the position and the function of the elder is normative uh, for the life of the local church. But there may be some brothers in here that, and, and again, I'll go ahead and tip my hand. I've been at Southeastern for uh, 15 years. 
only one time have I had a, a, a woman speak in chapel, and that was Carrie McDonald, who was one of the, was the only survivor of five missionaries that were brutally murdered uh, in Iraq. And she came and shared her testimony about losing her husband, losing Larry and Jean Elliott, graduates of Southeastern Seminary. And I don't feel like I violated scripture in allowing her to come and do that. It was exceptional, not normative. And she basically, she didn't get up and say, take your Bible and turn and walked us through uh, a text of scripture. Now, there may be some even in this room that say, well, I wouldn't find that problematic if it's exceptional and not normative. I would differ, but I do not think that would rule them outside of the boundaries of the Baptist faith and message. I don't think it even rules them outside of the boundaries of Danvers. And so I'm willing to grant some flexibility there, even though I myself, uh, Al taught me this when I was at Southern, I can't believe less than the Baptist faith, which is not a problem for me. I, I don't believe less than the BFNM 2000. I believe more than it. I believe more than the abstract. I believe more than Danvers. I believe more than the Chicago statement. But I don't believe less than that. If you believe less than that, then I think that puts you outside the acceptable theological camp that Southern Baptists have determined for our cooperation as a convention of churches. So, Danny, one of the things that I think is making this conversation as difficult as it is, even among those people who, like you're saying, largely would agree on complementarianism in the sense that elders should be men. Now, let's be clear. Most men should not be elders. Yes. So it's not like saying men are elders. No, most are not. Um, but it is true that the elders will be men. That's true. Um, the, the question uh, is going to come more in what is 1 Timothy 2.12, do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man. What does that mean when it's lived out in the life of the local church? And I think some, some folks who practice that do it in a way that seems uh, or that is more restrictive of what women do. And some brothers and sisters in their congregations practice it in a way that allows women more freedom to do more different things. And sometimes that group... Uh, can seem to the other like they're basically gutting complementarianism uh, and they're really just using the word but acting like egalitarians. And on the other hand, the, the more restrictive group can look over at, or rather the, the less restrictive group can look over the more restrictive group and say that their kind of complementarianism is actually just more sopped with culture and that they've hardwired a lot of non-biblical culture into that biblical command. And that's where the conversation is happening. I think that conversation is made really difficult because if if we use the word preach, should a woman preach? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that question. Well, I have a hard time having that conversation in a fellowship of churches that no longer understands what a church is. If we don't know what a church is, if there's no difference between a Bible study and a church, and if there's no difference between a sermon and a Bible study, if, if a lot of churches don't even have elders, don't have a special office of those who are called to teach, we just have a number of confusions that feed into this conversation that make it more difficult. I also think, I don't know if it's because of social media, and wonder what you guys think about this, I think the younger generation is a real step forward and an improvement over our generation. HB, you're excluded from the our generation. Well, how old are you, brother? 46? You look so young. All right. You're part of our generation then. All right. I think um, 
I think the uh, I think the, the younger generation's improvement over us in a number of things. Uh, one way is I think they're worse than us. They do not know how to disagree. I mean, if you disagree, you are Satan incarnate, and you see this in in the social media. And and I've got I've got evangelical uh, egalitarians that I know and love. I love Craig Keener. I think he's my brother in the Lord. He's an Assembly of God slash Baptist New Testament scholar um, who's incredibly kind and encouraging and good scholar, but he is committed egalitarian, and I think he's wrong on those things. Um, And I think being nice and kind and not misrepresenting somebody else's differences doesn't mean you think they're unimportant. You can think the differences are important, but I would encourage you, if you think the differences are important, represent them fairly and clearly. Try to represent the other person's position in a way that they would be satisfied with it. So let me say this then, and this is me. I see egalitarianism as a second tier issue. How you understand, you you say, I am a complementarian. I do not believe anyone can be a pastor but a male. Then any differences we have there, I think, are most likely going to be third tier. In other words, I couldn't be a member of an egalitarian-led church. I can't. That's a second-tier issue for me. I'm not questioning... Okay, brother, just just to instruct, let me push you there. Push. You're in Paris. Yes. You're there for two years. Yes. The only evangelical... No, I wouldn't stay for two years, but I went to Paris, okay. (laughs) The only evangelical church there that's preaching the gospel in English has a woman pastor. I'll start another one. (laughs) Well... That's really, really, really important. That's a good answer. I I just want to say, I'll I'll claim some responsibility here. I coined the phrase theological triage. Got the word triage from my mother, who was a nurse, um, and applied it to those first, second, and third order issues. But here's the issue a lot of Southern Baptists don't understand. So, Al, just to be clear, so first is is, is salvation, second is church fellowship, third is other stuff. Well, it's more than church fellowship, though. First order issues are issues without which there is no gospel. There is no Christianity. Uh, second order issues are constitutive of a church. You've got to decide if you're going to baptize a baby or not. You and I love Lake Duncan as one of our closest friends and brothers. Yeah. But we are not the same church. For We, we do different things with babies. Uh, and it has deep theological, deep theological um, meaning. Yeah. But we don't anathematize one another. Not only that, it is not a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel. So disagreement over second-order issues need not be a hindrance to the preaching of the gospel. Right. That is together for the gospel. We will right. stand arm-in-arm arm and teach the gospel. Third-order issues are neither a hindrance to the gospel nor to the fellowship of the church, or shouldn't be. Here's the problem. A lot of younger Southern Baptists are picking up on this, and they understand that, this, that complementarianism or the gender relations, that's a second-order issue. But what they're missing is second-order issues are also constitutive of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so just understand, we had a 30-year battle over first and second order issues. So this first order issue being inerrancy. Right. And the second order issue that we were fighting over was should women be pastors? Okay. That that that's one. That was the most important issue. The convention has declared itself so emphatically on that, it's in the confession of faith. So our confession of faith that constitutes the basis of our cooperation is inherently complementary. There's a story behind that, very quickly. The, the statement is, in, in the revision that we adopted in 2000, I was on the committee, um, it is the office of pastor is limited to men as qualified by scripture. Okay, the word pastor. 
the least used word. I think the least, the least um, theologically definitive word uh, in the New Testament, certainly compared to presbyteros. But here's the thing. Anti-Calvinism was in such a high watermark at that point in the SBC, they would not use the word elder because it implied elder rule in their mind and Presbyterian, they had anything to do with it. It would have actually solved a lot of problems of people who now uh, wish they had said presbyteros, but, the, but they didn't. Um, but the, the Baptist faith and message requires an understanding that the office of pastor is limited to men is qualified by scripture and that there are distinct roles for men and women in the home and in the church. Doesn't say about in society. We can differ over whether Margaret Thatcher should be Prime Minister of Israel. Uh, excuse me, England. <laughs> or Argentina. Right. <laughs> I, I was just talking about Netanyahu. It comes out. Uh, but, you know, the, 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 that, that's a different issue. I mean, John Piper's weighed into this, you know, but in, not authoritatively. You know, it's an advisory issue. But this is where I think a lot of younger Southern Baptists are acting as if Southern Baptists can embrace a pluralism on this that would include egalitarianism. No. We spent 30 years struggling with Scripture and each other to define the fact that this fellowship is established upon complementarianism. So, HB at Shiloh Metropolitan, are you guys clearly complementarian? Yes. <laughs> and you, you've been to the churches that, well, you've certainly been to Capitol Hill. Would, uh, would complementarianism look any different at Shiloh than you think it would at a lot of other people's churches here? No, I... Um... One of the reasons, I, I haven't said this much publicly anywhere, but one of the issues that leads me to the Southern Baptist Convention is that this was a settled issue. And I just needed to be around brothers and sisters where I did not have to argue about this issue. Mm. Um, to be honest, <clears throat> the church I serve was looking for a man with qualifications that I did not have any of them. Uh, spiritual qualifications, I trust, <laughs> yes. But I mean, size of church and all of those kinds of things they were looking for. And they had very good candidates who all came in and affirmed that women should preach, and the men of that church, and they did not have elders then. The deacons drilled me for three hours till I looked at the deacon chairman and just, I didn't know another way to say, brothers, we're on the same page. Mm. So I, I, I came to the church with a settled conviction. I came to a church with a settled conviction. One of the reasons we are Southern Baptists is because this is a fellowship where that is a settled conviction. Mm. I would say two things, though. One difference, I'm, our church is duly aligned, Southern Baptist and National Baptist. One thing just about black church folk 
is that we just, we do disagree with each other about stuff and we love each other and respect each other. And kind of like, yeah, I love him. We'll never do that. <laughs> but yeah, but we're, we're good. And we don't write each other off because of certain disagreements. Uh, when I, so when I see that, I see that on social media, as you mentioned, it just freaks me out. That's not the culture that I grew up in. It's just a larger sense of grace with one another that I pray that spirit would be greater among us uh, in the SBC. However, concerning this issue, there is in, in my black church tribe an increasing number of places that I am not invited and will not be invited because... When I, if I'm asked to preach at a pastor's conference, I know I'm preaching to preachers. I'm going to say, brothers, preach the word. And that may offend half the room. And their solution is they just don't invite me anymore. And I, so to that I would say, I feel like this is an issue that is aggressive. I feel like you give it space. It is going to insist to more and more space. And so it is not a matter you can compromise on. So we can speak a little bit tribally here, theologically, I think, safely. And uh, this is where I think that some of this has been confused by the fact that we have so many theological friendships and deep personal friendships with Presbyterians. Because Presbyterians have a polity and a theology of ministry that establishes a distinction between the office and the function. We do not, brothers and sisters in this room, we do not have that distinction. Baptist ecclesiology does not recognize a distinction between office and function. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm old enough, again, and raised in a very traditional Southern Baptist, uh, I think I'm the only one on this platform raised in that traditional Southern Baptist uh, context in which pastors did not use the title reverend um, and did not speak of being ordained. Rather, they were the pastor of the church because the use of the term reverend was considered Presbyterian or Methodist, Episcopalian. It implied a clerisy. It implied a clerical class. The Southern Baptists had an allergy to insist. It was not who we are. Now, this, these things got a little confused. But when a, a Tim Keller or a Kathy Keller, who are friends of the gospel and, and important influences for, for good in the, the reform movement, when, when they will say something like, uh, a, a woman can do everything an unordained man can do, that makes Presbyterian sense. I'm not going to agree with it necessarily. I'm not a Presbyterian. I'll let them fight it out. But it doesn't make sense to a Baptist. Uh, we don't have a category of ordained men. We have a category of elders, but elders are elders when they're elders of a church. They're not elders in some registry in the denomination of elders. And so it's a very different thing. And this is why I felt a little stronger about the need to clarify this. And I also want to point out there's a deep consensus amongst other Baptists. It's so deep, it's deeper than even most people in the consensus recognize. Southern Baptists have 
an incredibly deep and wide consensus that preaching to the gathered assembly should be done by men. Not by, as you say, any man, but men qualified by scripture, authorized by the church. So much so that, for instance, uh, J.D. Greer's church released a statement in 2015 that affirmed that emphatically. Uh, the Village, you know, their more recent statement affirmed that emphatically. Now, that doesn't answer every question about someone teaching here or there within the church, but it states boldly, here's a consensus. The preaching ministry, when the church is gathered as a congregation for worship, is to be done by the men authorized and called assigned to do so. I think we need to celebrate that is a very, very, very deep consensus. Now, those who are outside that consensus who do not violate the Baptist faith and message, I'm not seeking to remove them from the SBC. I'm not calling them out on Twitter. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not sending out students to look at church websites to find where a woman might be described as preaching. Um, but when the issue is asked of me, I'm gonna answer the question as faithfully as I can. And uh, I, I think it's important to recognize that deep consensus because the press and social media exist to deny the existence of that consensus. I think at least we ought to be honest and thankful for it. Guys, there's lots more we could say about some of the differences we could find inside the practice of complementarianism. Given we have these other pressing issues, HB, your, your call now. You want us to move on and talk about abuse that we've been talking about or about racism, which we pick one. You got to pick one, man. You got to pick one. <laughs> Just pick one or the other for our next topic. You're talking to me? I'm talking to HB. That's what I thought. Do yeah. it. But it's not fair. Racism. Okay, we're going to go to racism. Um, I was a little surprised that we were meeting in Alabama and that we didn't take any opportunity to educate ourselves and remind ourselves that the Southern Baptist Convention was formed because of the Alabama Convention sending on a slaveholder's name to the Foreign Mission Board in Boston to appoint as a missionary. And that gutsy little board in Boston, without really having the authority to do it, said no because they just thought it was so obviously immoral. And that caused such they a... They said yes until all of a sudden they said no. That's right. Which yeah. is important to recognize. Yeah, that's too. right. That they were, they were breaking a consensus. Right. Uh, and they had no outside authority to do it. They simply did it. And when they did that as a, a statement, a moral statement, Southern churches then organized separately uh, in Georgia in, in 1845. Uh, but that happened right here in Alabama. I thought it this convention would have been a great place to acknowledge that, to remember that, to mourn that, to pray for that, you know, for, for, for good fruit to come from repentance and cooperation. Anyway, I, 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 think I, I find there's a lot of ignorance of our history that doesn't help us. Oh, I would agree with that completely. And what I would say is two things. One, J.D. Greer did speak at the very historic uh, church uh, on Sunday and uh, address these issues. Secondly, I think we had such a laser focus on the bylaw constitution changes. Yeah. We really wanted to make sure that those were said well and that they passed overwhelmingly. And so because of that focus, uh, I think it kind of blinded us to some other issues that we could have, and I would agree with you, probably should have hit upon. Yeah. Well, Danny's exactly right. Um, there are lots of things. There's no excuse for not doing what we ought to do at any time. But this, the entire agenda of this convention became changed in the last seven months. And 
We, you know, it's sort of like a, uh, it's some other meetings where you really get to talk about one thing everybody's going to talk about you talked about. And it was real clear what was the one thing we had to yeah. deal with here. And yet we did have at least two racial reconciliation panels. There was one at the pastor's conference on Monday, and there was one here this afternoon. And there was a huge action taken. The redefinition of yeah, church of friendly cooperation yeah. put in against racial and ethnic discrimination. Now, that's where I thought we missed the great opportunity. And it was partly because the leadership was so glad it passed so overwhelmingly. Um, and it was also 6 o'clock and people were yeah, tired. We right. had the debate right. on the previous it, it, one. And, it, just, yeah. it just really wasn't the moment. Yeah. But recognize that a convention established in order to defend the practice of sending mission, slaveholders as missionaries just passed a statement saying that the very language a church in friendly cooperation with established in 1845 would now rule out the very people who established the Southern Baptist Convention in 1845. Praise that God. is enormous. Praise God. I think one of the things that I've been trying to do in my own life and that I've been encouraging my friends to do is just to learn more by listening, by building friendships, by reading, uh, if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know this This year I read in the spring uh, Frederick Doug Douglass's narrative of an American slave, and then I read his longer My Bondage, My Freedom this last week. And so I've been doing these kind of, and uh, various other things too, trying to dig in history to educate myself more so I'll understand more the experience. And one of the most interesting things for me in those books has been not even the things Douglass meant to mainly talk about, but the sidelines he casts on the experience of Christians uh, in the 1830s and 40s, and even among abolitionist Christians, uh, the racism that was there and that was endemic in the way people thought and talked. And it's just fascinating. Our staff came down a day early. We went down to the Museum of uh, Peace and Justice. Well, in Montgomery. The Legacy Museum, but the lynching memorial. What's it? National Memorial of Peace and Justice incredibly moving. Uh, if you guys have not been there, it only opened about a little over a year ago, I think, but I would strongly encourage you to go. And one of the brilliances of this uh, memorial about lynchings that have taken place is an extra monument for each county. Uh, they are displayed in a moving way in the memorial itself. But for each one of these that hangs there displayed, a long copper rectangle, they have a parallel laying outside with the name of the state and the county and the names and dates of those people lynched in that county. And what they're encouraging people to do, or as counties, is to take the one, that extra one, and take it back to their own county and make a memorial there. A sort of dandelion, you know, spreading the memorial, which I think is a, is a wonderfully kind and thoughtful way to get us to understand and think through and come to grips with uh, our, our past. And, you know, I heard one brother exhorting us from the floor, maybe you're here tonight, about forgiveness. And I so appreciate, you know, the call for forgiveness. But I don't think there's anything inconsistent between forgiveness and a clear acknowledgement of what's happened. And, in fact, I think a clear acknowledgement of what's happened and a clear understanding is going to be part of real forgiveness. So, Yeah. Brothers, any other comment on any of the conversations that have been going on through those panels or anything else here on race? No comment. I do just want to commend 
JD and the leadership, whatever might have been on his heart and mind after he is elected, Dr. Mulder is right. There's an agenda set for this meeting. Mm-hmm. And the panels and things that they were intentionally able to do in the midst of so many things that had to be discussed, uh, I, I just want to commend them for mm. doing what they could yeah, amen. With, with a lot going on this week. Yeah. So, J.D., if you're here, thank you for that, brother. Um, and then turning to our third topic, because it's getting late, uh, abuse has been the, the topic of the convention. Uh, Al, thoughts on how we as a convention have done in this meeting handling that? I read the Caringwell report. Uh, I appreciate it. Did it say everything that could be said? No. Would I phrase a few things differently? Sure. But the basic calls that it's giving, I, I agree with entirely. I've encouraged our elders to read it. I, I think it's a it's a, a helpful and useful tool. It's hard to distill this, isn't it? I, I, I would say this. Look, I have been talking several times today to the national media in anticipation of this meeting. And one of the things I t- say to them is, look, we don't have a hierarchy to hide anything. So everything's going to be out on the floor of the SBC. <laughs> Everybody can get to a microphone and say what they think. In other words, there's, 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 no, there's nobody to defer this to. There's nobody who can say, well, you know, that's going to be handled by X. Even in creating this credentials committee, all the committee can do is recommend to the SBC. The credentials committee can't act on behalf of the Southern Baptist Convention. I didn't think that was well explained today. Uh, Did or did not? I did not. I didn't think so either. This credentials committee can take no action. All it can do is recommend to the SBC. Uh, The SBC still has to take the action. It kind of goes back to my first comment. Well, and that was one thing that gave me and some other folks I talked to confidence to vote for it. Uh, because it's just giving a mechanism that can be usefully used, but it can't be too nefarious because it has to convince the convention absolutely. of what to do. Yeah. No, absolutely. And, well, let me, let me say this. So we are in a tension of trying to think through faithfully in the light of this challenge what we can do and what we can't do. So we can't march into a church and investigate. Uh, we can't establish policies for every church. What we can do is define our own membership. So this was not all we need to do. But this was at least what we needed to do at this meeting in order to be able to do the right thing in the future. If all we did is what we did at this meeting, then we created a, a standing credentials committee that that will make no meaningful difference. It's going to have to make a difference if the church, if the denomination actually responds to credible charges after you know against churches okay let me ask you some questions about stuff that went on and brothers you should chime in if you have some other questions about this but i I noticed in the book of reports that recommendation four was considerably more detailed and then in the bulletin today what we ended up voting on i think to the confusion of of one brother who had a motion trying to amend the what they were no longer even moving in the bulletin there was a much shorter motion that we actually ended up voting on one of the things that was absented in that, which seemed a little awkward, was the definition of sexual abuse. There was a very long, with I think three examples, of sexual abuse definition, and that was one of the things omitted in the recommendation that was finally brought to us that we voted upon. What's the backstory on that? The backstory on that is that if the convention defines it as bound to the definition, so then it could be anything else. Right. The explanation yeah, okay. given was the real explanation. Okay. If we define it and we say it means this, and something horrible happens that's that, the convention still needs to be able to deal with it. Okay. One, one, of, one of the other um, 
obvious things to me that I just I didn't entirely understand was uh, it seems like in the Caring Well report, we as local church pastors are urged to be more transparent. Uh, you know, come forward with the, the truth as quickly as possible. You know, certainly relate to the civil authorities, understand the criminal nature of some things, which I'm fine with both those things and, and have encouraged that. I, I thought it was kind of ironic uh, in a not good way that the messengers of this convention, which were taking these decisions, were watching a brand new guy in this office and a brand new guy in that office Heads of entities, which in this last year, a year ago, there were different guys in those offices. And the reason they're not there are not entirely unrelated to what we're talking about. And yet there's evidently, there's apparently no thought given to us being transparent with the messengers about that. Or transparent with the world about, hey, you know, we've really messed up here and here. And let us model what we're encouraging churches to do. And I just thought that was a a powerfully strange omission. And that's so clear to me that there must be some obvious things I'm missing. Al, you're used to these kind of questions from me. Uh, you know, I well, haven't I, mentioned I, names and I haven't so mentioned the agencies. But I think you are right. I think I profoundly share your concern. It's not just an irony, it's a moral awkwardness. But the transparency is also not defined. So he, he, here, here's a double problem that we have. And I don't have the, the wisdom of Solomon, obviously, to deal with this. Problem number one, we have a church leader. I'm not going to find that. Church leader yeah. who is either known to have been or suspected to have been involved in sexual abuse. And no knowledge of that is made. That person just goes to another church and does the same thing again. And then goes to another church and does that same again. We have this horrible example documented now in the press that someone who's at least name I knew, you know, is now facing criminal charges and had been a missionary. And, you know, it just it goes down the list. So that's, that, that's, that's problem number one. Hold on to that. The second problem is we are bound to the laws of respective states as personnel laws as to what we can say and can't say. And... I mean, here's the problem of being in the world, but not of it. If we're going to be organizations, you know, that are legally recognized, I mean, we bear legal responsibility. It's not clear. Some things are becoming clearer, such as one way of being transparent is not to say X name is suspected of doing this, but saying we, the elders of the church, have received uh, concerns about possible sexual abuse. If you know anything about this, you know, please come forward so that it's not hidden from the congregation. And if it becomes a matter of church discipline, as you would certainly hope it would be, and I would, then it is known to the church. That doesn't answer the question how it becomes known to anyone else. That's something that's still going to have to be, you know, figured out. Well, I'm just wondering, is that parallel to the situation the convention's in? Is that what you're saying? No, it's not parallel in the sense... Nothing related to the convention and the personnel you mentioned related to minors, which is a legally hugely okay. definitive issue. All right. That's, That's a fair. mandatory That's report okay. that needs to be talked about differently. Than, and, and look, so one of the things that, that's mentioned in the Caring Will report is, and this is horrible, okay? So we have a category of sin that's a lot bigger than the category of liability. 
you know. But for instance, what if there's the revelation of a, quote, consensual sexual relationship between, say, a pastor and a female church member? Well, we understand that to be sin, clearly. How we deal with that's one thing. How the world defines that as abuse, I mean, after all, so in, in some sense, a woman can't give consent to someone who's in spiritual authority over her, or at least it's not the same kind of consent. Now, the world only holds to a morality of consent, and so it's in complete you know, civil war over this. We have a theology that says consent isn't nearly enough to justify a sexual behavior. But look, I mean, we're, we're in a vice here. I don't, I don't want to minimize the difficulty. The secular world wants us, they don't understand our sexual ethic, our understanding of sin and our, our, our exercise of church discipline to begin with. This is just gonna get more complicated. We're gonna to have to talk about this a lot. We're gonna need all the good advice we can get from survivor support groups, from, it's got to, you talk about polity and theology and ecclesiology discussions. We really need to have deep ecclesiology discussions that our forefathers should have had but didn't have. No. Last question, just in, in parting here, because it's, it's late, and I'm just wondering, uh, last year, the Vice President of the United States addressed this convention. This coming year, uh, 2020, if the Lord tarries, this convention plans to meet again in Orlando, which is located in Florida, which again and again in American history has determined who becomes president. If someone who's running for president, whether it's the sitting president or someone else, asks to address the convention next year meeting in Florida, would you advise JD, good idea or bad idea? Danny? Bad idea, no. Uh, HB? Bad idea. Al? Very bad idea, we actually already have a rule about it, so don't sweat. <laughs> the convention does not have elected officials speak in an election cycle. That's a pretty well-established principle in the denomination. And if he comes to one of our churches and wants to, uh, well, never mind. That's <laughs> like that would ever happen, you know? All right. All right. Well, I think it's late enough. Uh, there are extra books for you to get on the way out that are for free. Grab your copy of the book on budgeting. The other one, uh, let's close in prayer. Dr. Moeller, you want to close us in prayer? Let's stand together. <laughs> Father, in the name of Christ, we thank you for the fellowship that's in this room. How rare is this? That we get together with brothers and sisters in Christ. We love the gospel together. We love the scripture together. We love Christ together. We love the triune God together. We, we, we love being together. We love being Southern Baptist together. Father, may because we have been here, we be more faithful in what's invested and entrusted to us. Not just for ourselves, not just for the sake or the name of a denomination for the sake of those who have not heard the gospel, and for our children and grandchildren, that they might hear the word of God. So lead us in your wisdom, not in ours. Protect us from error. Father, we wouldn't even ask you that you prevent us from embarrassing ourselves, but may we be protected from embarrassing you. That's enough for us to pray for tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <laughs>